Philippians chapter 4, and we looked last week at verses 1, 2, and 3, and, and we saw, we kind of just kind of spilled over a little bit into verse 4, three times Paul uses the phrase, in the Lord. He said in verse 1 there, stand firm in the Lord, live in harmony in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord. So the key thing that he's drawing us to, and that's a phrase that you see throughout this book, he talks about us being in Christ or in him or in the Lord. The idea here is the same, is that we abide in Christ, that our life has been transformed or changed. We knew that by the very introduction when he called uh, the uh, recipients of this letter saints. That's who we are, those of us who know Christ in a personal way. It means we've been set apart. God has invaded our hearts and mind and, and brought us uh, out of our own sin and the effects of our sin. And he has uh, begun with us a relationship, and it is a relationship that's unbreakable. It's a, a relationship that is initiated by him. We saw that in chapter 1, verse 6. He who began a good work in us will continue until the day of Christ Jesus. And for that, we give him all the praise and the honor and the glory. He says to live in harmony uh, with one another. He says to do that again in the Lord because naturally there's just conflict. And really about the only way I can survive those and thrive in the midst of that is to be in the Lord. The key, chapter 2, verse 5, is to have the mind in you that's also in Christ Jesus. So that in our life, and, and we have an example here in verse 2, two gals who are disputing. We're pretty confident it has nothing to do with doctrine. But it had something to do with doctrine. I think, I think Paul would have been all over this. Uh, but Paul is saying, live at harmony. Let me give you an illustration of that if I can. Um, just mark that place in Philippians 4. Turn to the left, would you, to uh, Galatians chapter 2. Um, I, I was covering this and probably living this week, so I thought it was kind of interesting. Um, when Paul, Paul writes these beautiful words about living in harmony, he's the one who writes in the book of, of Ephesians about us being in one, one body, one spirit, one Lord. Uh, throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, he comes back again and again to this idea that we who are Christians are to live in this peace and harmony. Uh, Romans chapter 13, verse 18, he said, if it's possible, live at peace with one another. And there's a really interesting uh, moment in Paul's life, and it's between Paul and Peter. You see in Galatians chapter 2, verse 11, Paul writes this, when Peter came to Antioch, now this is the guy who wrote, love is patient, Love is kind, all this stuff, okay? When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Why? Because he stood condemned. Verse 14, but when I saw that these were not straightforward about the truth, I said to Peter, in the presence of all. So in, in language we would use today, Paul is in his grill here. Paul's in his face here. He doesn't do it quietly. He doesn't do it behind the scenes. Remember, love is patient, love is kind, live in harmony with one another. You can just see people going, wait a minute, Paul, I thought I heard you right there. I heard you say this and saw that you wrote this. And he's saying, yeah, but there are times when you're going to have to go toe-to-toe. -to -toe. There aren't many. Boy, we don't want a bunch of hills to die on. But there are times when he, can you see that? I opposed him to his face in the presence of everybody. Why? What was at stake? The gospel. You can't be messing around with the gospel. A whole bunch of peripheral issues and, pre uh, and, and issues that uh, are a matter of preference and even personality. 
Paul said, I'm going to get all tripped up on those, don't care about those. You know, I became a Jew to the Jews, and Gentile to Gentiles. I'm, I'm going to try to break down as many barriers as I can. I'm going to live in harmony. I'm going to be as yielding as I possibly can in all of these things that, frankly, aren't to the center, really, of this Christian life. But to the gospel itself, I can't compromise there. So that's kind of interesting. But, but what he has in mind here, and that's why I'm pretty sure, back to Philippians 4, that this isn't a doctrinal issue. You got two gals here, and they're arguing over something. And he's saying, live in harmony. And he's saying, listen, you the church, come alongside. Help them. These are good gals. These are girls that struggled with us. These are girls that worked with us in the cause of the gospel. Don't throw them under the bus. Don't choose sides. Don't divide over this. And you know you had that going on, right? You know you had Odia had her little camp and Seneca had her little camp. He said, don't let that happen. Then verse 4, he returns to the, <clears throat> excuse me now, the theme of the book. This theme of the book is joy. Paul, throughout this book, uses that term joy again and again and again and again. And he's telling them to live in joy. He's already said to them, rejoice in the Lord. But now he says it again. Rejoice, how? In the Lord, when? Always. And as, and, and as if to reinforce that, he says, again, I'm saying to you, rejoice. Now, we made this point before. This is a command. Paul would never say, be happy. Because I can't really command you to be happy. Because happiness has some sort of a circumstantial part to it. We're happy when things kind of go our way. We're happy when things are good. But overall, he says, I want you to rejoice because rejoice isn't this circumstantial thing. It, it is a matter of relationship. This, by the way, is not the only time that, that they would have uh, heard or seen this in Paul's life. This is a constant theme for him. Now, let me make this point to you. Help me out. When Paul is writing this letter, he is where? In prison. In, uh, you don't need to turn there. Let me just read it for you. In Acts chapter 16, Paul has come to the, to the city of Philippi. He's begun to preach. The church is being formed around him. There's opposition, it always happens, that raises up against him. It says in Philippians chapter 16, verse 22, the crowd rose up together against him, that's Paul and Silas, and the chief priest and magistrates tore the robes and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. And when they were struck with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to secure them. And he, having received such a command, threw them to the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. So here's what's happened. The command is, don't let these guys get away. We, we want a super secure detail to cover these guys. So he didn't just put him in prison. He put him in the inner prison. He didn't just chain him in there. He chained their hands and feet. So here's Paul. He's been beaten. Now he's thrown in there into the inner part, really, of this prison. All he was doing, by the way, is what God called him to do. All he was doing is preaching the gospel. How would you respond? Verse 25 says it was about midnight. And Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Isn't that amazing? 
There he is in this prison, doing everything that he was supposed to do, beaten for it. It's midnight, and he's singing songs, hymns, praising God. And the prisoners, by the way, are listening because everybody's watching. Just like they're watching Paul, everybody's watching you as well. He says, rejoice. He writes it from the prison. He, he speaks to them firsthand. In fact, I'm sure that we're going to look at it when we get to verse 9. I'm sure that they knew this whole story about him being in prison and the earthquake that comes and all that goes with it. But you could not rob Paul of his joy. Um, I have a stack of these. I just threw a bunch of them away this morning. And I wasn't sure whether to do this or not. So I asked Neil whether I should, and he said, yeah, do it. These are unsigned cards that I've gotten over the last year. And there's a whole bunch of their prayer requests that have been prayed for. But let me just read some of these to you. Uh, chapel service, so in here at 8.30. Very cold air conditioning. We're dressed for warm weather. Too much standing. One can worship sitting down. Music, too long, too loud, too much. Repeat, 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 repeat. You can do better. Amazing Grace is a great song. Your changes are not an improvement. They're worse. I really don't like the audience spotlights at the 6 o'clock service. They're distracting. Too much standing in the conference center. Why is the music so loud? For our children in this church, who must be confused that even though their parents at home teach them God's word that says, let your moderation be known to all men, yet they come to church, and along with the culture, they're drawn to programs that encourage the opposite, things like blast extreme. Please sharpen the pencils. <laughs> we have several families that are members of EVBC, and we find the music during communion preparation to be distracting. Now, I got a whole bunch more. My, my point in re reading these to you is not to call you out. Somebody said, I'm afraid to say anything or write anything for fear I'll be, in a, be an illustration. Well, uh, I, I, you're not an illustrator. I don't know who you are. If I knew who you are, I'd love to chat with you about some of these things. But I don't know who you are. Nor does this offend me. This doesn't bother me. Okay? In fact, I honestly feel sorry for somebody who has to write this. I really do. Because you know what? You got no joy, man. I, I especially hate this last one. We have several families. So not only are we offended, we, we think we need to recruit to our team. We need to find other families who are offended too. Well, let's talk about it at lunch when the kids are there so we can set a whole tone for the rest of their lives with how you deal with this. Now, please understand this in the right sense. I don't care. It's not I don't care about you. It just makes me so sad that Paul's in prison, beaten, rejoicing, and you're here cold, standing too long, not liking the beat of amazing grace. And, and for everyone that says it's too cold, there's one that says it's too hot. And my point is not to rectify that. It's to try to get you out of your own self-absorbed, selfish little world. Because you know why? It's just robbing you of your joy, man. 
<laughs> I'm telling you. And I got it. I understand it. I had it now. It just robs you of your joy. And I know, here's how I know. This is really important. Here's how I know. Because I can do this too. I live three minutes from here. That light at, at McQueen <laughs> and Elliot, if I miss that, it, ruins, it can ruin my whole day. <laughs> he doesn't want you to live this way. There is no fun. There's no joy over music, at communion. I want to make sure I understand this. As we remember him hanging bloody, beaten, crucified, the music's ruining your day. And I'm not trying to trivialize that. And I'm not trying to make you feel uncomfortable. I'm trying to call you out. I'm trying to see, do you see how self-absorbed you've become? You understand why it's cold in here in the morning? Because it's hot at night. And, and, and we care about the people at 4 o'clock. Remember last week we were talking to Justin about where to put that 6th grade class and we said it really fits at 10.30. That's the best place for it. Well, you know what? For the sake of the body and opening up places for visitors, we're going to move it to 8.30 because it's about something bigger than just what's best for those 6th graders and their parents, but what God might be doing at the church. Rejoice when in the Lord always. And that's the only way I can do that. I'm telling you, I could fire these things off at the speed of light. And it says much more about me than it does the air conditioning or the music or volume. Rejoice. How? In the Lord. See, the only way that I'm going to really be able to rejoice... And remember, it's a command. Do it. The only way I'm really going to be able to rejoice is if I'm just absorbed in thoughts about him. A.W. Tozer, in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, writes this. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. This is true not only of individual Christians, but of the company of Christians that compose the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is our idea about God. Tozier in another place says this, here's the problem with our theology. It never descends low enough or ascends high enough. It never gets man down low enough. We have too elevated view of man and too diminished view of God. And when I begin to see God for who he is, I understand I am who I am, who the Bible says that I am. All of a sudden, he gets bigger, I get smaller. And rejoicing, just and cut me slack, almost comes naturally. It's the byproduct of this. MacArthur writes, knowledge of God is the key to rejoicing. Those who know great truths about God find it easy to rejoice. Those who have little knowledge of him find it difficult to rejoice. Boy, those who understand who he is, those that are like Paul that are in a prison with these big thoughts about God, couldn't you see yourself there going, God, wait a minute. I do the same thing with Joseph. Couldn't you see, Joseph does everything right, everything right, everything right in terms of his relationship with Potiphar's wife and all, and he goes further and further in the dungeon. Couldn't you see him going, God, what are you doing? But there he is giving thanks. And the scripture is really clear. The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. 
What does he want from us? To think about who he is and what he's done. To camp there. Rejoice. Rejoice where? In the Lord. When? Always. And then again, I say rejoice. That's the key, isn't it? There in verse 1, verse 2, verse 4, this idea of being in him. The night before he died, Jesus is speaking to the disciples. And John records it in John chapter 15. And in verse 4, I mean, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. Ten times in verses, in, in, um, verses 4 through 10. Ten times Jesus uses the word abide. Abide in him. And then he concludes, he said, These things I've spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be made full. Where do I find joy? Not happiness, joy. Where do I find it? In him. In abiding in him. In understanding that he's my father. I'm his kid. I'm in right relationship with him. And now there's joy in the midst of circumstances that frankly aren't very appealing. Look, kind of continue the thought with me, would you? Verse 5, he says, Let your spirit be gentle. We're in Philippians 4. Known to all men, the Lord is near. Verse 6, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Now, we could paraphrase the verse this way. Be anxious about nothing, but pray about everything. God is very clear in his word here that for us to be anxious and for us to worry, this is serious now, is sin. Ray Stedman writes, have no anxiety about anything. These aren't just Paul's words. They reflect the position of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. The entire word of God is a constant exhortation to believers to stop worrying. It's everywhere forbidden to those who believe in Christ Jesus. And I think one of the most serious areas of unbelief is our failure as Christians to face the problem of worry as sin. Because that's what it is. Worry is not just something everybody do, does, therefore it must be all right. It is definitely labeled as sin in the scriptures. And the exhortation everywhere is to stop. Have no anxiety about anything. That's what he says, right? Be anxious for nothing. Now, he's not saying that there aren't things out there to worry about. He's not saying that it isn't a scary world out there. Here's what he says. He says, but here's the cure. The cure to worry and anxiousness and anxiety and stress is to pray. Be anxious about nothing Pray about everything. First Peter chapter 5, verse 7. Cast all your anxiety on him. Why? Because he cares for you. This world is filled with things to be worried about. It's a scary world. We live in very, to me anyway, uncertain times. My alarm is always set for either on the hour or the half hour. Every day. So every day, the first thing I hear is the news. And the other day, I, I, you know, the beep, beep part I knocked off, and there was the news, and it went like this. Oil prices are going to hit $120 a barrel today. Gas is going to go to $3.40, 50 a gallon. 
The cost of food in Maricopa County is up 18% of where it was last year. Contracts being written on houses have increased, though there is this glut of property. If you want rice, you better go to Costco today to get it. It was kind of the way. And, and this is really difficult for a guy like me, who's, who's and you know this, I'm very candid about it, who's essentially pessimistic. The, the glass is half empty and it's leaking, and, and that's me. I mean, that's me, and that's the first thing I, and yet I'm not a worry guy, and I got a lot of things to think about. I got stuff here, and you, just like you, I'm no different than you. I guess that's the point I'm trying to make. I'm no different than you. And yet I'm not to worry. Why? Because I'm to pray. Why? Because he's the one who's got it all under control. Here's what he's saying. Tom, let me worry about it. You just go whatever it is you got to do. You do your little thing. Try to not screw it up too bad. And don't <laughs> you worry about it. I'll handle it. Here's how Thursday went. I, leave, I try to leave the house at 5.50. I teach at 7. So I got up there, said hello to everybody, got in, taught. And someone came up who was a friend of, of Susan and mine and said that her husband has cancer. And then I went to a breakfast with a guy whose mother died and his dad has really severe Alzheimer's. And then I met with another guy who's got a business deal and it's fallen apart. And then I taught again. And then I met with a guy whose business has been purchased and everybody who wants to stay with the company's moved. That, that's life, isn't it? That's where you live. That sounds like some version, really, of, of, your, of your day. I can see being upset, and I can understand concern about these things. I'm not saying cease to be human. I'm just saying cease to operate naturally and live supernaturally. Don't be anxious about all this stuff. Why? Paul, give me a hook. Boy, you better have something bigger than that. That's not enough. How? How can I possibly do that? Pray. Pray. And that demonstrates your dependence upon God, your confidence in Him. Now, that raises all sorts of questions. I started to make a list, and then, uh, you know, one of the ways I study is go through some stuff and then come and see what some of the other guys have done. So I had my little list of questions, and then uh, James Boyce had a list that was almost like mine. Here's just some of the questions. So let me start talking about prayer. Does prayer change things? Does prayer change people? Does God change his mind as the results of us praying? Does God move us to pray? What, what does it mean to pray without ceasing? Who can pray? How do you pray? Why should you pray? That raises all sorts of stuff. And this is not, as Paul deals here in, in verse 6, this is not a dissertation on prayer. He's simply saying pray. In its simplest form, what does it mean? It means to talk to God. It means for you and I to talk to Him. That's what prayer is. There's things we can do, and things can happen in our lives that can get in the way of that. We have open access. That's why, by the way, the only people that can truly pray are Christians. Now, you have non-Christians that pray, but, but that's not what he's talking about. There's no way to the Father but through me. That's not just salvation. That's prayer. So you and I have this opportunity when we're empty, hurting, dry, afraid, worried. We can go to him. And not have to worry about it anymore. It really is. That's what it means, cast your cares. And that's what it Father, I don't get it. It's scary. Uh, good luck. Because I'm, I'm going to try to not think about it in a worrying way again. 
Because whatever it is, I don't even know. I don't even know what to do. I don't know what I can do. I know to obey you. I'll try to use my head, give us wisdom. But I'm not going to let this cancer ruin my day. I'm not going to let that stoplight ruin my day. I'm not going to let that deal blowing ruin my day. In Isaiah 59, Isaiah writes this, Your inequities have separated you from God, and your sins have hidden his face from you. There's things we can do that can kind of get in the way of our prayer, and, and it all has to do with sin. Psalm 66, verse 18. If I cherished sin in my heart, David writes, the Lord would not have listened. 1 Peter 3, 7. You husbands, in the same way, live, your wife, live with your wives in an understanding way. She's a woman. Show her honor as a fellow heir of grace so that your prayers will not be hindered. Stated positively, James 5, 16. The effective prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. So what are we talking about with prayer? Because we can turn this into some serious gymnastics here. We can talk about the these and thous. I don't know. It's, it's talk to God. It's be real with him. He says, cast your cares on me because I care for you. Cast your anxiety on me. I care for you. It's to talk to him. And, and the depth of that, think with me now. It's almost like human relationships almost mirror this divine relationships. Think about human relationships and conversation. Think with a per person you've met for the first time. Maybe you're here. Maybe you're married. Think about the conversation on your first date versus the conversation on your 10th anniversary. Think of the first meeting when you first meet somebody. Think of a friend. Somebody now is a close friend. And when you get together, man, it doesn't take long. You're going deep fast. But when you first met him, it wasn't like that. When you first met him, you're going, but the sun stink. You know, Diamondbacks are awful. What's your water bill? I mean, that, those are the conversations you have. But now it gets deeper, right? Friday, I did something that I've never done before in my life. I went fishing. And I was going to bring you my license and show you I have a fishing license. I'm pretty proud of it. Um, but I, I went to Walmart. I had never been to a Walmart in my life. Uh, and I went to Walmart and I got a fishing license. So this whole thing was a new experience for me. And I went fishing. So the guy, the guy said, we're going to go fishing. I, uh, he said, come on, man. And I said, all right. And he said, be at the house at, at 4.30. <laughs> and I said, okay. Well, I said, what, what time will we be home? He said, well, we're going to come home. We'll come home whenever you're tired. And I said, I'm going to be tired at 4.30. If we're going at 4.30, I'm going to be tired then. And we're out there, and we're like, we're like in this thing, and we're casting, and, and, and then... And, we're just, and, and I'm, I'm trying to guess, you know, what time you think it's time to go. And actually, I had a wonderful time. But he said, this is what I like about fishing is just talking. Just the talking. And we're out in the lake six or seven hours and, and you know, eating some turkey and cheese and just talking. And I knew the guy, and by far it was the most concentrated time we, we, we spent together. And we had a couple, like two or three times, we went really deep on a couple of topics. It was really cool. And I thought about, that's the way it is with God. If you don't really know him, it's going to be, hey, God, what's your water bill? <laughs> but man, if you know him, you're going, hey, God, this, this sucks. This stinks. I don't know what to do here. I don't even like it. And I don't understand what you're doing. 
But I know this. And see, what do you do in that? What do you do when you're all that? There's all these things going on. You go with what you know. Here's what I know. That's the old thing, right? What I know trumps what I feel. So I go with what I know. What do I know? Well, I know you love me. I know you won't allow me to be tested beyond that which I can endure. So whatever it is you've brought into my life, I can't say, no, I can't handle it. Because he's not going to bring it in there if I can't handle it. And, and, and I know that what you want me to do, truly, honestly, is to pray. So God, I'm just telling you. I'm just telling you what's in my, what's in my thought, what's in my mind. I confess it to you, my sin. He says in here, and he uses kind of words that, that there's some differences in here, but it's a general idea here of prayer and supplication. I'm just telling you the truth. I'm being specific. There's a, there's a whole side to this of, of thanksgiving in this. Again, from the pen of John MacArthur, people become worried and anxious and fearful because they don't trust God's wisdom, power, or goodness. They fear that God is not wise enough, strong enough, or good enough to prevent disaster. Thankful prayers uh, brings release from fear and worry, and it affirms God's sovereign control. He's in control. He's God. He's bigger than any old problem you have. Let me tell you another thing here. What should I pray about? What should I pray about? Everything. When I first became a Christian, there were two things about prayer that, that really kind of struck me as, 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 as odd. The first thing was I went from a background where when we, and when we went to church a lot, but when we prayed, it was either rope prayers or memorized prayers. So it was either something we were reading or it was our Father, our heaven, will be the name. Hail Mary for the grace of the Lord. It was big, big, big. Well, all of a sudden now we're in these prayer meetings and people were like praying. And, and there were two things that struck me. The first one was the competitive nature of prayer. You know, God, you're the God, you saved us, and work at East Valley Bible Church, and then the next guy would, you know, we've talked about before, and then the next guy would pray for the city, and the next guy would pray for the state, and the next guy would pray for the country, the next guy would pray for the hemisphere, the next guy would pray for the, the planet, and then there was always the guy at the end who said, God, well, you're not limited to this, you, you control the whole universe. And then the poor guy's always stuck at the end, and he would always say, what would he say? Father, I echo all that's gone before me. You know? So that was one. The other thing is I found myself going, are you kidding me? We're really praying about this? We're really going to pray about your sister's aunt's cat? We're really going to pray that this cat gets, well, we're really going to do this? You think God gives a rip about this? And here's, here, now, here's the answer. Here's, here's this is a really important... The answer is, what is the answer? He does. He does care. He says, pray about everything. And it may sound stupid as can be to you, but to Aunt Mary's sister, that cat's a big deal. I'm not sure you got anything in your life that's that big a deal, really, do you? Well, don't worry about anything. Why? Because you can pray about everything. You can cast all your anxiety on him. They're not your problems, they're his problems. They're not your issue, they're his issues. And, and see what's happening there? Is my view of God gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And it doesn't say, and this, this is pretty interesting. He doesn't say, be anxious for nothing, pray about everything, and I'll take care of it, and I'll answer your prayers. He does not say that, does he? He says, here's what will happen. The peace of God, 
which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. He doesn't say, if you pray for this, it will happen. And there can be a whole bunch of reasons for that. And at the very top of the list might be this. You don't even know what to pray for. You don't even know what the right thing to do is. I've used this illustration a bunch of times. And then I finally met the guy in the illustration and said, I've used this. I don't know if this is true or not, is it? And he says, it is. And his name is Dave Dravecki. In fact, I'm meeting, we're working on a project together. I'm meeting with him tomorrow. And, and Dave was a, a wonderful baseball player. In fact, if you look at his stats and you put them out there tonight, today, these, these, these ERAs and these things are things that, that guys are, are paying them a lot of money. They're short supply. And, and he got cancer. And then he came back from it, and then it came back, and he was pitching one day, and his arm snapped. I talked to a guy that was on the field. They said it literally sounded like a gun exploded in his shoulder, and they ended up having to amputate his arm. Now, here's what I know. He and his wife were praying, God, use us in an amazing way. God, give us a platform. And then the cancer came, and I'm pretty sure that they started to pray, God, heal that cancer. And God said, you're giving me conflicting prayers here, man. What do you want? You want a platform? You want healing. And then if I say, God, you know what's best, God says, you know what? I'm going to give you a platform, but I'm going to need that arm. And before you know it, you'll be on national television with millions of people listening to you as Barbara Walters interviews you. We don't even know what to pray. And, of course, we always pray for healing. I understand that. But it's I heard an ad the other day, and it said this, 85% of people who get lung cancer die. Well, that's stupid. 100% of people who get lung cancer die. Right? Everybody who gets lung cancer dies. Everybody who gets the measles dies. Everybody dies. So we're praying along. We're praying along. God, you know, here's this lung cancer. God, heal this lung cancer. Somewhere along the way here, he's got to get you out of here. <laughs> I mean, some way this has to happen. And we keep pushing it away like it's the worst thing that could ever happen to us. I saw somebody the other day on this campus. And I said, how are you doing? And they said, better than the alternative. And I said, that is not true. If that's true, why are we jacking around in here? If the alternative isn't better than this, why are we wasting our time? And somehow we got to get that. Getting sick and dying is not the worst thing that can happen to us. It is part of the best thing that can happen to us. And I understand the humanity of that. There's not a day goes by that I don't pray for Susan. And I wish you were healed. And I watch her and I see what's going on. And we got three, we've got three and a half years of this now. And I see what it's doing to her physically. But I also see, so see what it's doing to her spiritually. And what it's doing to us emotionally. You don't even know what to pray for. Other than, God, your will be done. But man, pour your heart out. I don't think there's anything wrong with saying, God, I don't want this. I don't want to suffer like this. I don't want this. I wish to deal with whatever it is. Pray, but always, God, I don't even know. You know better than me. And then give me the ability to understand and to trust you in the midst of this. Because, God, this is about you. It's not about me. It's not about me having the smoothest, easy life. 
I'm telling you, there is something absolutely wonderful about what's going on right now because it is very difficult out there. And again, this is my pessimistic side. I don't think it's going to get any better. You know, I don't think you're going to go. Be, the, my, the day I graduated from high school, I, I, I bought gas for 19.9 cents a gallon. I, I sense we're not going back to that. <laughs> but it doesn't matter. God's in control, isn't he? And the peace of God, not the peace of man. Jesus said in John 14, my peace I leave you, my peace I give you, not as the world gives. Don't let your hearts be troubled. The world has a peace. The world says this, smoke this peace, snort this peace, touch this peace, buy this peace, rent this peace, experience this peace. It's an experience. It, it, it's, it's the absence of turmoil and it's the presence of stuff. It's the absence of suffering. That's the world's peace, isn't it? And God says, eh, give me that peace. That's what I think of when I hear peace. I think of that. He says, no, I'm going to give you that. Godly peace is not the absence of turmoil. It's the presence of God. It's him right there in the midst of that. Right in the middle of that suffering, hurt, pain, joy. It's him right there. It's knowing he's in control. I don't have to wonder. I don't have to guess. It's not wishful thinking. It's not a hope, a hope, a hope, a hope. A. It's not the power of positive thinking. It's just a fact. He who began the good work will continue it until the day of Christ Jesus. He started it. He'll continue it. He'll finish it. What does he want me to do? Hang in there. Abide. Hang in there. Abide in him. Rest in him. Tired? Weary? Heavy laden, come to me, man, and I'll give you rest. I don't say I'm going to take the pain away or the problem away. I'll give you a peace that passes all understanding. Now, part of this connection in here to these emotions, to that anxiousness, is our head. So he says in verse 8, finally, and he's bringing all this to conclusion. Finally, he says, Whatever is true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, good of uh, repute, if there's excellence and anything worthy in it, dwell on these things. The word dwell means evaluate, consider, calculate. Think about these things. What things? The things that are true. Well, what's true? Well, the Word of God is true. It's honorable. I'll give you these words, definitions. It means to, to revere worship. What is right could also be translated righteous. What is pure, undefiled, clean? And then these last two, whatever's lovely, whatever's of good repute, those are each used only this time in the New Testament. The first one means what is sweet or gracious, and the other has to, to do with a high regard or reputation. Let your mind dwell on them. Think about God. Can we go back to what we talked about at the beginning? When, when I think about rejoicing and I think about fear and anxiousness and moving them out of my life, it's to think about Him. It's to think great thoughts of Him. It's to think true thoughts of Him. It's to allow, we use Tozier's words here, to allow God to ascend high enough and allow our own humanity to descend low enough. And then look how he closes this section. The things that you learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. The word practice can, has this idea of a continuing repetitious action. You keep doing, doing what? 
the things you learned and received and heard and seen in me. Those things that you saw in me. You knew the stories. You knew that I was in prison. You knew it was midnight. You knew we were singing praise, worship, hymns. You knew what God did. Those things that you saw. You know what this is? Skin on skin relationship. He said, Listen, the things that you learned, received, heard, saw, practice them, and what will happen? The peace of God will be with you. Now, you know the elementary idea. I can't have the peace of God till I have peace with God. So he's writing to us who are his kids, the ones who start our prayers, Father, to us. He says, now look at You can have this peace. It's a peace that will blow your mind, and it will blow your friend's mind. Because it's not natural. It's supernatural. I want to make one more appeal here. This idea in verse 9, to me it's skin on skin. It's life together. It's enjoying and, and, and dealing and slugging it out and, and living with the hard things of life together. The things that you learned, received, heard, saw in me. How do you do that? Proximity. How does that work in our life? Well, it means there has to be some sort of contact. If you are new to East Valley Bible Church, you're trying to figure out, how do I get in? How do I figure this out? How do I get plugged in? You just jumpstart it. Our answer to almost any of your questions is area ministries. That's the answer. I want to have somebody who will just kind of come alongside me. Area ministry. Where do you live? Boom, a group. Uh, Last night, I uh, hosted the newly married class over here. And uh, we were meeting uh, once a quarter, and, I, and we were talking about roles in marriage last night. So I interviewed Al and Betty Page, and then I interviewed Susan about the roles in marriage. And we have little cards, and you can write out questions, and we answer them. But we didn't need to do that, because I knew exactly every question that was going to be asked. There wasn't a question asked that I didn't know was going to be asked. Not because I'm so smart. Not because I'm so smart. I've just done it enough that when you talk to married people about marriage, they ask the same questions. They go like this, okay? The wives will say this. How can I get my husband to lead? Well, here's one way. Don't talk like that. That's, (laughs) you intimidated me with that. How can I get him to lead? Well, the best thing you can do to give your uh, husband the confidence to lead is to follow him. Well, wait a minute. What if he makes a bunch of decisions that aren't right? I never said it was going to be easy. <laughs> I mean, there, there's no trick to it. If all he's going to do is do all the right things, then there's not a whole lot of challenge to this, is there? Well, how can I submit? What does it mean to submit? What if he's not nice to me? And, and, I, and, I, and I love it, and I, this is not the place to talk about marriage right now anyway, but everybody wants to jump all over this, this whole submission thing. And I'm saying, let's set it aside for the second. Because here's what I'll hear. What if he doesn't? What if he's not? What if he's wrong? I'm a second-class citizen. All that stuff. Well, let's flip it the other way. Because right after this, he says, husband, love your wife. What if he goes, what if she doesn't respond? I never hear anybody on the love thing start to look for the loophole. And, and Susan, because the question was there last night, and Susan, Susan was so cool. Susan said, you know what? I, was, I didn't have any of this. She said, I was like this, you know, Helen Reddy, I am woman, hear me roar, blah, blah, blah. And she was a strong girl. And, and she said, you know what? Well, here's what all of a sudden I discovered. And this was, a, this was before even submission came in. She said, I just knew there was a plan, 
And then all of a sudden I saw it's God's plan. Now the curse is to usurp that plan. You need the skin on skin. You know what, I'm all done. So here's what I said last night. Hey, man, if you're here and struggling with this, here's the deal. You're in a perfect place. Because everybody in this room has struggled with this. Go to those people. Look around, the older ones. The ones that are older, just look at them. Because they got uh, those. Go to those. Go to those people. You know, things drooping. You know, go to those people and ask them. And they'll come alongside. Because the things that you learned and received and heard, now do them. We're supposed to be living this component, this component of our life together. That's why this area of ministry stuff matters. You're not made to go it alone. I got the world we live in. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps, yada, yada, yada. But that's not the Christian life. The Christian life, sir, uh, uh, life doesn't have any bootstraps to pull yourself up by. You're lost. There's nothing you can do. And God saved you. And then he gave you a heart for him and a desire for him. And the more you know him, the more you're going to want to make him known and share this and let this life be transformed. He says it in here. It could not be more clear. Rejoice. Be anxious for nothing. Practice these things. And you have a peace that transcends understanding. Next week, if you said to me, you get one message and not the gospel, to our culture and the world we live in, we are right in my wheelhouse next week, man. This is my deal. This is what I talk about. I'm going to do a men's conference here in a couple weeks, and I guarantee you this will be one of the sessions. We talk about it everywhere we go because I'm convinced it's the missing ingredient in most of our lives. We'll talk about it next week. Father, help us see this truth. Live in a way that brings honor and glory to you. God, thank you that in just a few minutes we're going to have an opportunity to see a dozen and a half men, women, students whose lives have been transformed and who want to publicly encourage us, the body, and declare that reality of transformation. They want to do it in baptism. So God, as we leave here and pick up our kids and head to the commons for teacher appreciation and get back over here, God, I pray that we would glorify you. God, thank you that we can come directly to you, pray to you, and you hear our prayer. And so often you align our hearts and give us wisdom to see the world as it truly is. God, let us live this way. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.